This week, Peabody says it may need to pursue in-court restructuring, Hertz debtors report higher rental volumes since Labor Day, Revlon announces conditions for exchange and consent solicitation met. And as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Connor Skelding. Later, you'll hear a replay of our Transocean webinar, which was hosted on October 20th. It's Sunday, November 15th. The Hertzstetters reported third quarter earnings this week, disclosing revenue of $1.268 billion, down 55.3% year over year. The company saw adjusted corporate EBITDA of negative $26 million, down from positive $392 million in the prior period. Liquidity at the end of the third quarter was $1.1 billion, consisting of unrestricted cash and cash equivalents. The company noted sequential progress as month-to-month revenue improved, saying that since Labor Day, quote, U.S. rental volume has trended better, reflecting pent-up leisure demand and market-specific rate adjustments. Domestic revenue improved 14 points sequentially from July to September, the company said, adding that October revenue has held steady at September's level. Regarding deflating, the company said it aggressively sold vehicles into a, quote, record-high U.S. residual market throughout the third quarter, taking its average operating fleet size down by 34% through retail, wholesale, and dealer direct channels. As of the end of October, the company's U.S. fleet level is well-positioned to match current demand, Hertz said, as is its international fleet, which was down 51% year-over-year in the third quarter. Reorg separately reported that the company is considering to sell Donlin Corp., its commercial fleet management subsidiary, according to sources. The Donlin business could sell for about $1 billion as early as the first half of 2021, sources said. In its 10Q for the third quarter, coal miner Peabody disclosed that it may need to voluntarily pursue an in-court restructuring. If it is unable to obtain a waiver of non-compliance or otherwise amend its credit agreement to address covenant issues or improve its overall liquidity and financial position through other means. The company released cleansing materials related to discussions on a potential transaction stating that it is, quote, seeking to provide for maturity extensions and covenant relief while maintaining sufficient operating liquidity and financial flexibility. The cleansing materials include proposals and counterproposals from note holders and lenders relating to the potential exchange. However, according to an 8K, the company has informed the note holders and the revolving lenders that a joint counterproposal on November 4th is unacceptable to the company. The proposals contemplate a transfer to an unrestricted subsidiary of its Wilpinjong mine in Australia. The proposals contemplate a transfer to an unrestricted subsidiary of its Wilpinjong mine in Australia and exchange revolving loans and certain of its unsecured notes due 2022 into new debt at that entity. The company reported third quarter 2020 revenue of $671 million, down 39.4% year-over-year due to lower volumes, mixed changes, and weaker seaborne pricing. Sequentially, revenue increased 7.1% from $626.7 million in the second quarter. In third quarter earnings calls this week, Monoline Insurance executives expressed hopes that the changing membership of the Promisa Oversight Board and new political leaders in San Juan and Washington, D.C. will have a positive impact on Puerto Rico's debt restructuring process. On Tuesday, AMBAC President and CEO Claude LeBlanc voiced hope that a, quote, materially changed landscape involving new oversight board members and Puerto Rico's political leadership could lead to progress in the island's, quote, prolonged restructuring process in the coming months. Also on Tuesday, MBIA National Bank Finance Guarantee CEO Bill Fallon said little progress had been made in debt restructuring over the past three months, but added that he expects progress to be made once the Oversight Board's new membership is completed over the next two months and the administration of Governor-elect Pedro Pierluisi gets underway in January. In an earnings call last Friday, Assured Guarantee President and CEO Dominic Federico said new Oversight Board membership and new governing administrations taking power could have a substantial impact on Puerto Rico's finances. Cosmetics company Revlon announced on November 12th that all conditions precedent to the consummation of its exchange offer and consent solicitation have been satisfied including the minimum liquidity requirement of $175 million. Revlon will enter into amendments to its bond indenture that will eliminate substantially all restrictive covenants and certain events of default provisions. 
As a result, the company said, quote, it does not expect that any bankruptcy or insolvency proceeding will be necessary. Revlon also reported third quarter earnings on Thursday, reporting revenue of $477 million for the three months ended September 30th, down 20.1% year over year, and adjusted EBITDA of $54.5 million, down 20.3% from the third quarter of 2019. The company attributed $119 million of the $119.7 million year-over-year net sales decline to negative impacts associated with the COVID-19 pandemic. During an earnings call, Revlon CFO Victoria Dolan said the company has, quote, already initiated conversations to refinance its foreign term loan and revolving credit facility, both of which are scheduled to mature in 2021. Revlon asserted that it is, quote, confident that it will complete the refinancings well in advance of the respective maturities. Top red stories last week included Trimark Minority Term Loan Group files lawsuit against company sponsor majority lenders regarding non-pro rata recapitalization. Breaking. Alternative plan sponsors seek to limit Garrett debtor's exclusivity to allow consideration of alternative plan proposal in tandem with debtor's process. And... Cineworld term lenders seek to preempt potential asset transfer to UNSUB to secure new financing and letter to company, administrative agent. Well, thanks, folks. Good morning and welcome to the last six weeks of the year. And I'll tell you what, my money is on 2021, be it even more interesting than 2020. So I'm going to use all the shopping days between now and Christmas to load up on the popcorn. But first, let's talk about the toil and travail before us next week, that being the fate of humanity after all, commencing as we usually do with Monday, which is the 16th of November, according to the Gregorian calendar. There is a preliminary injunction in Malincrote and earnings from Vantage. Tuesday, November 17th, omnibus hearings in Hertz, Talon, Valaris, and PG&E, and a confirmation hearing in Asena. Wednesday, November 18th, L Brands reports earnings, and there's a motion to dismiss hearing in Garrett in motion. Thursday, November 19th, omnibus hearing in Avianca, adversary hearing in Malincrote, and a hearing in Hornbeck. Plus, there's earnings from Macy's. And Friday, November 20th, there's an omnibus hearing in Chesapeake and Barney's. Barney's, outside of whose Chelsea Emporium, I once saw Mr. W. Axel Rose long, long time ago before his most recent gig of filling in for the great Bond Scott of ACDC, which Australian band has a new album out. Not sure how they managed that without the great Malcolm Riff Machine Young. And maybe one of these days I'll tell you about the time I was in the car with Johnny Cash and he beat the radio to smithereens with his boot. And on that note, not a moment too soon, back to New York. Next, here's our Transocean webinar. All right. Today is Transocean Tuesday. I'm Sean Daly, Distressed Debt Legal Analyst for America's Core Credit by Reorg. And joining me on today's webinar are my colleagues Jody Henry, Senior Covenants Analyst for Covenants by Reorg, and Adam Rhodes, Distressed Debt Analyst for America's Core Credit. Please note that if you'd like to access this webinar in the future, a replay with slides will be available on the Reorg Media page later today. In the next hour, we will provide an overview of Transocean, uh, company operations, uh, recent and ongoing litigation, and a little bankruptcy issue spotting to top things off. We will answer questions at the end, but please feel free to submit your questions at any time using the Q&A widget located on the bottom of your screen. All right, let's get started. Adam? Thanks, Sean. Along with its drilling peers, Transocean has been under tremendous pressure since the 2014 downturn in energy prices. With its industry-leading floater fleet, some of which are attached to above-market, long-dated contracts, Transocean has thus far been able to survive while peers such as Valeris, Diamond Offshore and Noble have recently turned to Chapter 11. Transocean owns a fleet of 38 floaters, including 27 ultra-deep floaters and 11 harsh environment floaters. Additionally, the company is constructing two of the highest-spec drill ships in the industry, the Deepwater Atlas and Deepwater Titan. Both ships are scheduled to be delivered next year and will be the only 20,000 PSI-equipped rigs in the industry. The Titans mating contract is with Chevron in the Gulf of Mexico and expected to start in the first half, of 20, uh, first half of 2021. The Atlas remains uncontracted, but the company has signed a conditional agreement with Beacon Offshore for a project in the Gulf of Mexico that is subject to final investment decision. 
Transocean's fleet is reflective of its strategy to quote high grade where it exclusively focuses on high spec floaters. To pursue this strategy, the company has completed 40, excuse me, 74 divestitures since 2014. Uh, this includes the sale of its jackup fleet to board drilling in 2017 for approximately $1.4 billion. Uh, that includes about a billion dollars of um, new build liabilities that the company also um, passed on to bore. And then on the acquisition side, Transocean purchased Sanga Offshore and Ocean Rig for combined $6.1 billion in 2018. Both these purchases added uh, 16 floaters and over $4 billion of backlog. So now moving to Transocean's capital structure. The capital structure shown here reflects pro forma adjustments for the August and September exchanges that we will discuss in more detail momentarily. Additionally, the gray highlighted areas are those that are eligible for repurchase in a cash tender offer announced last week. In total, the company has $8 billion of debt, um, $1.5 billion of cash. Um, the company's secured debt includes its undrawn $1.3 billion uh, revolving credit facility and its seven notes secured by separate rig collateral totaling $3.1 uh, billion. The secured notes and dentures require uh, semi-annual amortization and importantly also include a 10 times total leverage covenant that requires the company to sweep cash from its rig entities if breached. In terms of unsecured debt, Transocean has uh, $5 billion of unsecured notes with varying levels of structural seniority by virtue of the various issuer and guarantor structures. The company finished the second quarter with approximately $2.8 billion of liquidity, um, including the $1.3 billion uh, revolver availability and $1.5 billion of cash, uh, unrestricted cash already mentioned. Uh, additionally, the company has approximately $200 million um, reserved for note amortization um, out of $437 million of restricted cash in total. So let's look at um, the liquidity in the context of the recent financial results of Transocean. Um, as it faces pressure that I discussed before, since 2016, the Transocean, uh, Transocean's revenues have dropped from $4.2 billion to $3.3 billion, uh, most recently in the LTM period ended June 30th. Uh, during the same period, free cash flows decreased to approximately negative $125 million during the LTM period. Um, on a cash flows and operations, less CapEx basis, um, management recently guided to negative free cash flow of approximately 900, to 900 million to $1.1 billion um, in the second half of 2020 through the end of 2021. Uh, it's important to note that this includes $1.4 billion of new build capex for the Deepwater Atlas and Deepwater Titan, um, which would be $1.7 billion in total. So let's take a closer look at the secured notes and the rigs encumbering these, these securities. As previously mentioned, Transocean has seven secured notes totaling $3.1 billion in principal. Each note has a separate indenture in its own segregated rig collateral. An indenture for the Conqueror notes is not available and it's secured by a rig ending its uh, Chevron contract next year. The five and three eighths secured notes and five and seven eighths secured notes are each secured by two separate pairs of harsh environment rigs acquired in the Sangha acquisition. The four rigs are still operating on legacy Sangha contracts with Equinor in the North Sea uh, the remaining four secured notes are secured by drill ships contracted uh, to Shell in the Gulf of Mexico. All of these contracts were struck um, in a better market back in 2012. Um, the rig securing the secured notes represent, an in total, um, represent an estimated $6.5 billion of backlog, uh, which represents well over the majority of Transocean's $8.2 billion backlog, uh, most recently announced. Um, in their um, October fleet report. Looked at another way, the annualized day rates of these vessels represent 48% of LTM revenues. Uh, a breach of the 10 times secured leverage covenant, which I mentioned before, uh, would trigger a sweep of these rates cash flows and would deprive the rest of the transition structure of a significant portion of its consolidated revenue. Let's take a quick look at the very secure in the revolving credit facility as well. 
The $1.3 billion credit facility is secured by five drill ships and two harsh environment semis. One of these uh, one of these rigs is idle, and the day rates for the two semis contracted to Equinor are not provided by the company. But based on available information, these rates contribute just under $300 million of backlog and on an annualized basis would represent 13.6% of LTM revenue. Now onto the unencumbered rigs. Transocean owns 11 contracted unencumbered rigs. In this set, the Transocean Norge is indirectly owned through a 33% interest in the holding company. The unencumbered rigs include one rig without day rate disclosures. Ignoring that rig, the unencumbered rigs represent approximately $277 million of backlog. So just pulling these slides together, the last three, um, it's important that the rigs securing the secured notes provide the, the, an outsized amount of Transocean's backlog and annualized revenue. Uh, to the extent that the company might violate the 10 times total leverage covenant, a cash flow sweep from these assets whatever material detrimental effect on the company. Uh, with that, let's take a look at some of the steps the company has taken to mitigate some of these risks. As previewed when discussing the capital structure, Transocean completed a series of public and private exchanges in August and September of this year. While these transactions are contested and Jody will provide uh, way more details in a bit, if these, if these transactions are implemented as described by the company, Transocean will decrease its total debt by nearly a billion dollars, uh, decrease its annual cash interest by $28 million, and reduce its uh, total leverage by nearly one turn. A week also a week ago, uh, Transocean announced cash tender offers for any and all of its 2020 nodes and up to $200 million in aggregate purchase price amount of the four nodes, uh, node issuances listed here as well. To the extent there is a, there's meaningful participation, these discounted purchases would also contribute towards deleveraging. And finally, it appears based on the tender disclosures announced last week that the company has also purchased notes in the open market uh, since the second quarter. Presumably, these would have been at a discount and also contributed towards deleveraging. Just to be clear, Transocean has not indicated that it is enter entertaining a Chapter 11 filing, and it continues to implement these liability liability management strategies. With that, I'll turn it over to Jody Henry, and he will discuss the company's recent internal restructuring uh, that it has implemented in combination with its exchanges. Thanks, Adam. All right, so I'm gonna run through the, uh, the organizational structure uh, both before the reorg and uh, after the reorg, and then I'm gonna walk through uh, the uh, covenant at issue in the. Uh, uh, litigation with White Box, the successors in the science government, and uh, the various uh, arguments made so far in the litigation from a high-level view, and then uh, uh, potential consequences um, if, if a court was to find that the company breached the indenture. All right, so um, on this slide, we're just showing a really simplified cap structure uh, org chart um, before uh, Transocean completed the recent reorganization transactions. Uh, the, the main points to really get out of this um, uh, are that uh, at the bottom of the chart, uh, the operating subsidiaries, these are the rig level assets that secure um, individually uh, the revolver or, or the various series of secured notes. Um, the bottom triple group of uh, uh, lower tier guarantors, they also guarantee the revolver, giving the revolver the most... Uh, structurally senior position in the cap stack um, as to all of these middle uh, tier and top tier entities. And then in the blue box, and sorry, the orange boxes, all right, these are the uh, subsidiaries that guarantee the notes that are at issue in the white box litigation. And those notes were issued by the light blue box, Transocean Inc, uh, or Tank is what a, a lot of people are calling these. So moving on to the next slide, we'll see what the company did in the recent reorganization, all right? So uh, in the previous slide, uh, the, the upper tier, each upper tier uh, triple entity, 100% owned equity in the uh, uh, lower tier entity below it, all right? Um, here we see a, a few things that went on. 
The company disclosed the exact details and mechanics of these transactions in a recent court filing and declaration. Uh, uh, but otherwise, they hadn't uh, prior to that uh, court filing, I think it was last week, really given the uh, uh, super uh, granular details on this. The details are that on uh, there, there are two really two series of transactions, the July 29th series of transactions uh, and then a, a subsequent uh, series of transactions on August 6th. On July 29th, equity in the lower tier entities was transferred to the upper tier uh, guarantors such that the upper tier entities each owned one third of the equity in the lower tier entities. And so following that um, and the creation of the uh, 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 green boxes in the center of the slide. The upper tier entities held both equity in the, the new mid-tier entities and in the existing lower tier entities that guarantee the revolver. Following that, all right, on August 6th, each upper tier entity contributed a third of its equity in each lower tier entity uh, to each middle tier entity. So it's, it's kind of a, a word soup there to explain the mechanics, but the overall point to get at here is that the company essentially did a drop-down structure, all right, that the top group of triple entities guarantee the uh, uh, old existing priority guarantee notes, the bottom tier of triple entities guarantee the revolver, and the company inserted the green triple entities into the structure and then issued notes and had those entities guarantee the new notes that, notes that they offered in exchange for uh, existing notes in the structure. Thereby, assuming that that was a valid transaction, the uh, new exchange offer notes have a guarantee that's structurally senior to the guarantees of the existing guarantee notes, which are guaranteed by the orange entities. All right, moving on. Well, let's take a look at the... the the issue here about these uh, transactions. Um, so White Box is suing the company. Uh, they are not taking issue with the actual issuance of the new structurally senior debt. They are taking issue with the mechanics that uh, were done to complete that issuance. And, and the, the central argument uh, is around uh, the successor and assigns covenant, which is a variation of a successor obligor covenant. Right. Um, so it's it's very akin to a typical mergers covenant, uh, except it applies to the guarantees. So whereas a mergers covenant uh, will typically require that if uh, uh, an issuer transfers all or substantially all of its assets, the the uh, liabilities must follow with the assets. That's essentially what's going on here, except it applies to the guarantees given by the subsidiaries that were in the orange box uh, on the prior slide that guarantee these uh, subsidiary guarantee notes. So looking at the language on the slide, uh, th this is the covenant uh, verbatim from the 2027 notes that are currently being litigated. And the covenant is also the same in the 20 company's 2025 notes, which a default notice has also been delivered for, um, except I segmented out the language here and obviously manipulated it uh, a little bit for formatting issues. But just looking at the non-grade text and then the green text is essentially carve-outs to the covenant. So the covenant uh, requires that a subsidiary guarantor, i.e. one of the uh, entities in the uh, uh, blue, or sorry, the orange box, may transfer or otherwise dispose of all or substantially all of its assets to any person, provided, however, that in the case of the transfer or disposal of all or substantially all of the assets, of that orange box entity, if such other person is not the parent, which is the Topco, the issuer, Tink, or another subsidiary guarantor, such subsidiary uh, guarantor's obligations under the guarantee must be expressly assumed by such other person, right? And then it has a carve out for if it's in connection with a transaction in which the guarantee would be released as provided by section 11.06, which is the guarantor release provisions. So unpacking that uh, and comparing it to a typical mergers covenant, just to kind of conceptualize it, what the covenant is essentially saying that if all or substantially all of a subsidiary guarantor's assets are transferred, then the guarantee is required to follow with the assets to the transferee. And what 11.06, the guarantor release provisions say 
is that if the transferee is a third party entity, that's going to cause a release of the guarantee. And that's, that's going to cause uh, this, this uh, uh, requirement to not follow with the assets. All right, moving on to the arguments, we're going to take a look uh, on this slide and the, the subsequent slide at uh, the, the various arguments uh, advanced in the current lawsuit uh, by both Transocean and White Box. We're going to look at them from a really high level, kind of breaking them down to bare bones. And uh, if you want further details on these arguments, and they're, they're obviously uh, much more complex than just uh, you know the, uh, these two slides uh, explaining them, um, the, the best place to look is on the court docket on the reorg website. Um, and, and locate the legal memos that were filed um, throughout. I think there's a, uh, there, there's a few by each of the uh, parties, and there, there's likely going to be another legal memo filed by White Box here in the next week. Um, so let's take a look at um, some of the main theories circulating in the case. So um, Transocean's main argument is uh, comparing this uh, successor in the science covenant that we just went over to the credit facilities debt basket. Um, and, and the main problem and, and the, the source of the dispute is that when the company did the dropdown and then issued new debt at that dropdown, they did not give a guarantee uh, to the existing priority guarantee notes. And White Box is claiming that that guarantee should have been given and the existing uh, subsidiary guarantee notes should be parry to the new guarantee notes on a structural basis and not structurally junior to the new guarantee notes. So Transocean, its main claim uh, uh, going through uh, this, this top left box, they say that the successor in the science covenant that we just went over is mere boilerplate. And they cite the credit facilities debt basket under the debt covenant. And they say that that is a bespoke senior debt basket that was heavily negotiated and that the credit facilities debt basket is an express contract right to incur structurally senior debt. Now, they, they characterize the basket as uh, uh, really like a structurally senior debt basket, but, but it's really a general use debt basket for um, any sort of credit facilities debt as defined. Um, and, and then the nuance, the provision is that, well, it doesn't restrict that debt from being structurally senior debt, so the basket for, uh, permits structurally senior debt. So from that, the company's uh, main argument is that the credit facility basket is a, quote, specific provision, and the successor and assigns covenants, just a general boilerplate provision. And um, basic contract law says that if two uh, contractual provisions are in conflict, um, uh, a canon says that the uh, specific provision is going to trump the general provision. So Transocean is claiming that the uh, express contract right under the credit facilities debt basket uh, trumps the boilerplate successor and assigns covenant. Otherwise, the credit facilities debt basket would be re rendered meaningless. All right. White Box, in contrast, is claiming that the uh, successor and assigns covenant is not boilerplate. Uh, the, the, main, the main source, I think, for saying that that's the case is that uh, of the uh, existing uh, guarantee notes, uh, one of those doesn't even have the covenant. So it was added at some point. Uh, uh, so it, I think the other, the other main point about the boilerplate uh, argument is that uh, just because something is boilerplate does not mean that it really doesn't have value in the contract because all provisions are supposed to be given at least some degree of meaning. Um, for example, the, the most uh, uh, valuable covenant and indenture really is the right to pay interest and uh, principal, which uh, although that's boilerplate, um, you know, the document would be useless without that boilerplate covenant. Um, so White Box claims that the company, quote, invents conflicts between the credit facilities debt basket and the uh, successor and assigns covenant. Uh, and they, White Box says that they could be read in harmony to give each one meaning. Uh, but then White Box's backup argument is, well, if the court does find that there's a conflict, then we can get into the analysis of the specific in general, and White Box claims the exact uh, opposite of Transocean. So it, it's really, uh, on this point, it's really, is a court going to find that there's a conflict between uh, the existence of a credit facilities debt basket that permits the company to incur structurally senior debt 
and the exists uh, in a conflict with the successor in a science covenant, which requires if assets are transferred from the guarantors to another level in the structure, uh, that that guarantee must follow. So the, the provisions are, are somewhat at odds, but uh, the question is, are they in conflict or can they be read harmony? All right, moving on to the uh, uh, next box uh, on the same slide, interplay with guarantor release provisions. Uh, this is this one is probably one of White Box's best arguments. I, I don't think it's the best argument, but White Box's uh, claim uh, that they made recently was that in the covenant, and, and it's reference to the uh, section 11.06, the guarantor release provisions, the guarantor release provisions apply to transfers to non-affiliates, all right? So uh, therefore, the successor and assigned covenant applies to transfers to affiliates, except for the ones that are specified in the uh, covenant, which is uh, the Topco, Transocean Inc., and the subsidiary guarantors of these 2027 notes. So White Box's claim or argument is that, well, taking all of that together, this covenant must apply to internal transfers that happen at a level directly below uh, uh, the, the existing guarantors. And if not, the covenant would never apply because it doesn't apply to third-party uh, transfers. So it has to apply to internal transfers. Uh, Transocean's rebuttal on this point is a, is a little uh, creative. Um, they, they are reading it in combination with case law about uh, analyzing what it means to be all or substantially all assets. And their claim is that, well, it doesn't apply to downward transactions. It only applies to cross-stream or upstream transactions. They call upward or lateral transfers of assets. All right, so it's um, the problem here on Transocean's side is that once you start making these arguments about, oh, it only applies upward or lateral, it doesn't apply downward, you're starting to uh, really read additional text into the contract that doesn't exist. And, and you're starting to get outside of the, the four corners of the document. All right, well, moving on to uh, the next slide, arguments continued. All right, so uh, we'll, we'll look at three other uh, main, main arguments going on in the case. Uh, the first one is the test of the successor in, uh, in a science covenant on a consolidated basis, right? Transocean has not made this argument because it would be a difficult argument to make, uh, but it, it, it's essentially what they are arguing. Their, their main argument is that in doing the dropdown and transferring the equity that was owned by the guarantors, to the, the new drop-down entities, no assets were transferred, all right? So uh, in order to, to, to say that's the case, you either have to read into the document that it says that the test for what is all or substantially all assets, it's tested on a consolidated basis, and that language doesn't exist in the covenant. Or uh, instead of saying that, uh, the, the, the company is instead relying on case law that, that uses um, the language of uh, internal uh, reorganizations, but they're essentially uh, they're pretty much the same uh, same result, whether you, you read that provision into the document or use the case law to read that theory into the document. Um, so, so White Box has not really uh, been attacking this um, too much, uh, but I, I think this is the best argument um, that they possibly have, better than the uh, last one I went over with the guarantor release provisions. Uh, in the document, um, the successor in the science covenant does not ever state that it's tested on a consolidated basis. Um, but then there's two other uh, spots in the document where uh, the a test of all or substantially all assets is used. And in that provision, and in those other two space, uh, spots in the document, that it clarifies whether the test is on a consolidated basis or includes subsidiaries. And th those two spots are the merger covenant, which expressly says, for the avoidance of doubt, this test is on, uh, computed on a consolidated basis. Now, in its, in its filings, White Box has alluded to this somewhat. Uh, at one point in one of their legal memos, they exerted part of the merger's covenant, but they didn't even include language um, uh, about the test uh, and the merger's covenant being on a consolidated basis. And then the other one is the change of control covenant, which I don't believe White Box has raised in any of its uh, uh, arguments so far in court filings. 
But that one uh, in the change control covenant, where it also uses an all or substantially all assets test, it uh, says company and its subsidiaries taken as a whole. So it doesn't expressly say consolidated, but that is you know basically the same thing. Um, so I think uh, on this point, uh, white, white box has uh, could have uh, very strong arguments, but they haven't been uh, pushing uh, this argument and looking at other provisions in the document to figure out. Uh, to interpret the uh, successor and assigns covenant. And, and even in one of the cases cases that the company has been pushing, uh, Dynegy, um, this is the exact analysis that the court went through uh, in order to hold as it did there. It um, looked at the, uh, the successor and assigns covenant in that case, and then it looked at uh, other provisions in the document and came to the conclusion that the drafters clearly knew um, when they wanted to include subsidiaries in a test and when they didn't. And, and the, the provision there, the successor and assigns covenant there, did not ever expressly state that the test should include subsidiaries. So the court determined that it shouldn't include subsidiaries. Uh, the next box, case law re, uh, regarding substantially all, all or substantially all assets. This is um, one of the linchpins of the case. If, if Transocean um, can get the court to agree that the court should apply all or substantially all assets case law to this and include Transocean subsidiaries in that and not only direct assets that are directly held by the uh, note guarantors, the, the company will likely win. Uh, so Transocean's argument here is that the uh, case law, uh, which generally uses quantitative and qualitative factors to test uh, what constitutes substantially all, should be applied here. And they think that if you were to look at this on a consolidated basis, um, there's been no transfer at all. No assets, no value has really left the box. Uh, if you apply the case law that looks at uh, and includes subsidiaries in the test, white box view on this point is that historical case law has only dealt with situations in which less than 100% of assets were transferred. And that applying quantitative and qualitative factors here is, is inapplicable. And in any event, White Box thinks that 100% of the guarantor's assets have been transferred, uh, that being the equity that it held in the lower tier entities. The last point and argument that came up in one of the most recent court filings uh, doesn't seem to be all that important. Uh, what the company is claiming is that the successor and guarantor's covenant um, says that it applies to transfers to any person, and that's in the singular and not the plural. And, and as we saw in the uh, previous org chart slide, uh, each entity transferred a one-third interest to another entity and didn't transfer them all to a single transferee. Um, so the company is claiming that because the, the covenant refers uh, to just a person in the singular, um, and the trans transferees in the reorganization were plural persons, uh, three different um, entities that the covenant um, does not apply to the reorganization. Uh, White Box has not had an opportunity to respond to that argument, but I expect their response just to be that in the denture, in the rules of construction that follow the definitions in the document, uh, it contains standard construction provisions that say that uh, words in the singular uh, should be read the same as words in the plural and vice versa. Um, and I think one last point before we move on to the next slide. You know, I, I, I wrote a report uh, on these topics uh, in the past month or so, um, kind of came out with my view on, uh, uh, on these issues uh, and who I thought was in the right. But I, I will say that uh, uh, indenture litigation, uh, as always, is, is incredibly unpredictable. Um, particularly cases dealing with the question of what constitutes all or substantially all assets. Um, so, it, you know, I, I have my view on this, but it's certainly um, not not a hundred percent view on what the likely outcome is here. Um, all right. So, moving on to the next slide, event uh, of default timeline and consequences. So, uh, what this slide is showing is that if we are to assume hypothetically that white box wins the lawsuit. Uh, uh, and the company loses, what is the timeline, all right? So uh, in this slide, there's two uh, main pieces of debt. There's the 2027 guarantee notes and the 2025 guarantee notes. So the, uh, the 2027 guarantee notes had a default notice 
uh, delivered on September 2nd, which the company is claiming is invalid. So assuming for sake of argument, it is valid. And assuming for sake of argument that the company, that the, uh, the white box wins the court case against the company. All right. Uh, an oral argument scheduled for this month on the 28th. Uh, the company is asking that the court uh, come out with a decision overall, substantively on the merits, um, by the beginning of December, December 1st. The reason that the company uh, wants this uh, case to be done on an expedited basis is because the cure period under the indenture is 90 days, and that will expire on December 1st. So the company wants to get this handled before December 1st because December 1st is the first date that an event of default could be declared under the indenture, hypothetically, and those bonds could potentially be accelerated. Uh, the catch with the acceleration potentially being able to occur on December 1st is that the no-action provisions of the indenture permit after the 90-day cure period, which would be December 1st, for the trustee to accelerate, but bondholders cannot accelerate without the trustee until after another 60-day grace period. So uh, maybe assuming the company loses and assuming all of this gets resolved before December 1st and assuming the company uh, doesn't have time or doesn't have any options to do something creative or cure the breach or nullify these default notes, maybe these notes could be accelerated on December 1st. That would have to be done by the trustee if the trustee didn't want to do it you can add another 60 days onto that timeline. On top of that, all right, adding a potential another 60 days, there's also issues around potential make-whole claims. Uh, the, these note holders, if all of these events were to transpire, would likely seek a make-whole. The earliest they would possibly have standing to, uh, to, to uh, uh, try to seek that is December 1st or December 1st plus 60 days. Um, and then you get into uh, uh, additional litigation trying to fight over the make whole claim. Right below the 2027 notes, we see that the revolver is here. Um, and this is a big, uh, important point. The revolver, as is typical, contains cross-default provisions and a event of default under these 2027 notes could cause a cross-default under the revolver. The revolver, as of the most recent quarter, was undrawn, but this would block access to the revolver without some sort of uh, amendment or waiver uh, from the revolver lenders. Then looking at the 2025 default notes, um, same same exact analysis as the 2027s. The only difference being that the default notice for these um, was delivered a month later. And of course, the company is uh, uh, disputing the validity of that default notice. These notes also have a 90-day cure period. It's going to expire a month after the 2027 notes uh, default. Uh, cure period expires, and it's the same story with the make whole. What you is noticeably missing from this uh, slide is the uh, the company, all of the company's other series of notes. Uh, none of the company's bonds contain cross default or cross uh, acceleration provisions, which is highly unusual. The result of that is that if an event of default was to occur under the 2027 or 2025 notes, that could not in and of itself cause a cross default or cross acceleration under any of the company's other bonds. It would only directly affect the revolver. All right, moving on. All right, so here I'm gonna list out some uh, basic out-of-court strategies um, that I brainstorm and what, what I think is probably not viable and what is potentially viable. And again, we're on the, uh, you know, talking about the thought experiment um, of what if the court decides in favor of white box and against the company, and we get into that uh, event of default timeline from the prior slide. So non-viable options, cure the alleged default, probably not practical. The way the company would cure the alleged default is by giving the guarantee that white box seeks. Uh, they cannot do that uh, under the indentures of the new senior guarantee notes because that's where debt capacity does not exist. Uh, redemption of the default notes, also not practical. All right, um, if the company was to redeem these notes, they would be redeemable at their make holes. 
and that's the max amount of uh, damages that the company is potentially liable for if it was to lose in the litigation. So um, just paying that premium up front would make no sense. Uh, the story might be different if the, the, all the debt in the structure had cross-default uh, provisions, but it doesn't. Uh, tenders, exchanges, finance with additional senior, not possible. So we just went over that. Uh, tenders, finance with the revolver, also not possible. The revolver uh, doesn't, the revolver has a prepayment covenant that doesn't permit revolver draw proceeds to be used to pay down the 2025 and 27 notes. The company does, however, have a, uh, a lot of balance sheet cash. It was about $1.5 billion as of the most recent quarter. Uh, and that minus uh, tenders, it's, it's something less than that probably at this point. Uh, but they do have uh, a sizable cash position. Um, uh, the, the other possible option is uh, you know, they have a, an undrawn revolver. Um, maybe uh, they want to replace that uh, for the past. Uh, few years or as long as i looked back at the end of every quarter the revolver was always undrawn um so, so maybe they've been using that uh in between quarter ends but uh they've never been carrying a balance on that um so maybe um the company would consider putting uh, some piece of uh long-term debt uh in there to replace the revolver um and of course um you know in this uh, kind of doomsday scenario uh, uh where a court could potentially find that a default occurred and this debt could be accelerated. One uh, obvious uh, other option is bankruptcy, which I'll turn over to my colleague, Sean Daly, to talk about. Uh, again, the company has uh, not indicated that it's going to seek any sort of in-court restructuring, but uh, seems worthwhile to talk about. Thanks, Jody. Thanks, Jody. Yeah, is you know, is a preface to uh, this, this final discussion on some light bankruptcy issue spotting, right, sort of uh, disclaimer, you have to carry forward all the assumptions that would even get this company to a, a place where a filing might make sense. Uh, but just first, a, a very general note on timing. Anytime you see transactions going on, the, uh, the recent tender offers, exchanges, just, you know, always, always keep in mind the uh, preference period. Um, and then beyond, you know, thinking about catalysts or, you know, what could, what could make the, the company change their, their stance on a filing, um, just a, a quick call back to the total leverage ratio that's in the secure notes indentures that Adam mentioned earlier. Uh, you know, if, if you run up against that and cash gets stuck at those secured notes groups, well, how much of that cash was going elsewhere in the structure to to subsidize, uh, you know, maintenance of, of other rigs or debt service needs. Uh, another another point um, stemming from secure notes indentures, cash can leave those groups, but not via dividends, only via senior unsecured intercompany loans. And we'll get back to that in a minute. Uh, so if the company was going to file, as Jody just mentioned, there's currently uh, quite a lot of cash on hand. Could look there. Um, looking at the RCF, uh, any time you see a, a fact pattern where there's an undrawn re revolver, I, I think you just start to think naturally about that as a source of cash. Um, whether you get your revolving lenders to uh, convert into some sort of you know dip replacement to the revolver. Um, or, you know, sometimes people will do the, the big preemptive draw right before filing. It looks like a provision added to the conditions precedent for a revolver draw in the 2018 credit agreement um, would have a, a, an effective sort of blocking uh, a big preemptive draw, but just kicking the tires. Um, and moving, moving on. Just to highlight a few of the, the unknowns or the, the, the things to work through, uh, just thinking about claim priority in three buckets. In terms of all the secured debt that's out there, uh, fortunately, there are no sort of overlapping guarantees down at the, uh, the operating level. The, the various secured notes, the RCF, 
all secured by uh, different groups of, of rigs and their associated operations. Uh, again, coming back to this point that um, cash leaving a secured notes group, unfortunately, we don't we don't necessarily know which entity or entities that may have wound up at. Um, companies have a, a lot of flexibility to uh, to change their cash management system. Sometimes, as seen in some prior um, driller bankruptcies, you know you can make changes to your cash management system. Um, with the expectation of an impending filing, company just wants sort of max optionality on on where it's it's holding on to cash, ideally with the least number of restrictions. Um, but the the uncertainty here on okay, any you know any secured notes group will have a senior unsecured claim at whatever box winds up receiving the, the proceeds of this intercompany loan. Uh, you know those could sit. Uh, either senior to sort of what you would consider the uh, the structurally junior debt, or at worst, uh, you know, parry to if you know if the cash winds up, uh, you know, much much higher in the structure at a you know all the way at the top, say where you're you're talking about um, Tink or Transocean Limited, in a way where you know you you no longer have seniority to uh, junior junior debt and maybe a little bit of value bleeds away there. Um, then looking at the, the priority guarantee notes, I'll try not to get into too much of this and let Jody's excellent work stand on its own. But uh, just, you know, basic point, if the exchange offer stands, new PGNs were designed to be senior to the existing ones, uh, that would, you know, give them some seniority if you're, you're thinking about recoveries in a plan. Uh, but if the... You know, if the court holds that the 2027 PGN indenture was breached, the result is less clear. Uh, I think a, a good way of, of thinking about this is just that the the resolution whether the new PGNs remain senior to the the existing or if uh, they all wind up parry, whatever the resolution is, will will feel sort of inequitable to either the new PGNs, uh, which you know, ostensibly relied on the company's statements about seniority and, and priority. Uh, the the 2027, the, or the existing, I should say, the, the existing PGNs, um, and this is maybe part of, you know, having the campaign while the exchange offer was still open to try and highlight these these purported issues is to say that, no, you know, you if you if you exchanged, you knew going into it what, uh, what the risk was. Uh, but anyway, from the from the perspective of the existing PGNs, you know, maybe wanting to argue for uh, parry treatment, um, you know, sort of stuck in this this awkward position where you can't really unscramble the egg on the exchange, uh, and then just thinking about what kind of arguments could you make to say, oh, we're you know we should be entitled to uh, to parry treatment with the new PGNs, uh, just kind of it, it gets a little tough. Um, you know, thinking about claim subordination, thinking, oh, maybe Section 510, equitable subordination, that doesn't fit really well because you don't have misconduct by the holder of the claim that you would you would really want to see to justify that argument. So that's, you know, that doesn't look great. Um, you know, you can zoom out to 30,000 feet and say, a plan that proposes to give seniority to the new PGNs, notwithstanding, uh, you know, if assuming there's a, a court ruling that it says the 2027 PGN indenture was breached, uh, you know, if, if the plan nonetheless provides for seniority for the new notes in a way that seems at odds with that indenture breach, uh, you could, you know, you could come into court and say, well, that that plan, if it has that type of result is not proposed in, in good faith. Um, I mean, it's just, yeah, it's, there aren't, there aren't a, a ton of real direct ways. Uh, but again, just more, more trying to, to highlight a, a few points to, to keep looking at going forward. And that concludes the slide portion of our presentation before moving on to Q and a, just a quick thank you to, Corporate Credit Analyst Andrew Swap, who assisted Adam with the preparation for this webinar. Thank you, Andrew. All right.
Let's see what questions have come in so far. Got a few stacking up. All right, first question. Let's go to Jody. Jody, do you think that the judge will view section 11.03 as ambiguous or do you think there are enough facts not in dispute for a judge to go forward with summary judgment? Uh, uh, so on the, the first point, uh, whether the, the, the contract is ambiguous or not, um, I, I'd say, you know, I'm, I, uh, Indentured litigators would be able to answer this a lot better than uh, a, a company analyst like me. But overall, uh, uh, courts finding indentures to be a a ambiguous uh, is uh, fairly rare. Um, the, the general preference um, in, in interpreting these sorts of documents is to try to read the documents so that provisions uh, work in harmony and do not conflict with each other. Um, and, and neither side here is pushing that the uh, the document is ambiguous. You know, they, they've included that argument um, in their court papers um, as backup arguments, um, but but nobody's nobody's really pushing here that uh, the, the document is ambiguous. And I think there's a, a tendency uh, in reading contracts generally, and especially indentures, uh, to uh, uh, for a court to take pause before finding that there is an ambiguity. Um, but it, it's always a necessary part of a court's analysis, and it's one of the threshold questions in analyzing these sorts of documents or contracts generally. But it, I think it's probably unlikely that, it, that the court here is going to find that the uh, um, indenture is ambiguous because merely by the presence of a uh, successor obligor covenant that applies to the subsidiary guarantors, um, which is not an irregular type of provision at all, um, so much so that the company characterizes it as a straight boilerplate. And then the existence of a general use credit facilities debt basket, which, which again, um, exists in um, not all indentures, but um, nearly all, or at least high yield indentures, um, or in this case, high yield light indenture. Um, so these, these, these provisions and the way they're drafted are, um, very standard, and I would expect the court not to find that they are ambiguous. Great, great, thanks. Over, Over to Adam. Got a couple questions on the tender offers. Uh, Adam, could you just provide some additional background on those on those tender offers? Yeah, of course, Sean. Um, so the tender offers were announced last week. Uh, I guess it was a week to the day now. Um, they have an early tender deadline of the 26th, which is coming up in a little less than a week, and final deadline of November 7th. And if you look at the notes that are included there, um, looks like the company is targeting some of their near-term maturities um, and just continuing to, I guess, signal strength to the market as well as some of the contract counterparties um, and just show that it's continuing to, it, it intends to stay out of bankruptcy. Um, the company recently has made comments about its competitors filing for bankruptcy and referred to them as distractions for them, uh, where they've actually been able to pick up some additional business. Um, and they've also talked about how um, IOCs and NOCs really prefer strong counterparties uh, when contracting with them. So. Um, I guess they see um, the Diamond, Valeris, and Noble bankruptcies as uh, ways to take advantage of, of that. Um, they've also pointed to the fact that they think that um, some of these companies are going to come out of bankruptcy uh, with still weak capital structures and not um, a, a ton of liquidity. Um, so it, you can take different reads on the different processes that are in place or uh, being conducted right now with those. Um, some of the plans, but um, they also admitted that if there is serious deleveraging, uh, that would provide a competitive advantage to any competitor that does that with their capital structure. So um, I, I think that just that's kind of a long-winded answer. 
but um, I think that they're trying to show that they're not going to be filing for bankruptcy and clear out runway, as well as, like I mentioned before, um, try to stay within that 10 times total leverage covenant. Thanks. Thanks. So, so we've got another one on the tender offers that I'll take. Um, could they could they get clawed back? And yes, just pulling up the dates from a from a ninety day preference period perspective. Uh, early tender deadline expected to settle few days after October 26th, so that's October, late January, or uh, November 9th is what they currently have is the, the expiration date, which would put at uh, just early early February expiration. So yeah, late, late January or early February, um, if the company files before then, any payments made within the, the prior 90 days um, could get clawed back as, as preferences. All right, flipping it back to Jody. Uh, what was the purpose of transferring the century rigs to a new tree in the org chart? Uh, best, uh, best guess is that, um, uh, doing that would have replenished capacity uh, under, uh, uh, secured debt baskets and various indentures in the structure. Uh, the reason being is that, um, the, the debt covenants, um, and the indentures are subsidiary debt covenants. Um, and they only apply, uh, I think it's at the tink level and below. Um, so by moving the century rigs, um, and, and the century rigs before they were moved, uh, I, I believe they were uh, eating into capacity under the secured debt baskets. Uh, the, the general rule under uh, transocean indentures in regards to, to debt capacity, specifically secured debt capacity, is that uh, the indentures generally permit an uncapped amount of rig financing debt. Um, but if it's not rig financing debt, then there's limitations uh, on just like general use uh, secured debt uh, that can be incurred. Um, so for the most part, most of the company's outstanding uh, secured notes uh, were rig financing debt. Um, but the century notes were not, uh, the stated use of proceeds was a century of the century notes was to make intercompany loans um, to somewhere else in the structure. Um, who knows what those, or I don't know what those proceeds were actually used for, um, but the, at least the stated use of proceeds when the notes were issued uh, uh, never said anything about it being rig financing debt. Um, and since it wasn't rig financing debt, it likely depleted uh, capacity under uh, secured debt baskets. Um, and because the subsidiary debt covenants uh, only apply at the, uh, like the tink level and below, uh, therefore, uh, by moving the century rigs to somewhere above the tink level um, uh, and, and those notes following the, the transfer rigs, that likely replenished capacity on a dollar for dollar basis under those secured debt baskets. All right. And then as long as as long as we're with you, I'll flip you another one I I think you actually may have addressed earlier. In out of court strategies, is the company able to grant the guarantees to the PGNs curing the default? Um uh, I don't think so. Um, there, there's caps uh, under the, the new indentures that govern the uh, uh, new uh, senior guarantee notes um, that restrict, uh, re restrict debt there, um, additional debt there. I think uh, under the most recent indenture, I think the basket is something like $1.1 minus any senior guarantee notes that have been issued. Um, which is almost a billion, I think, or some, something less than that. But there's there's some debt capacity under those indentures. It's not a lot. Um, the senior guarantee notes uh, now also trade at very depressed prices. So there, there's uh, issuing there could be tough. Um, the 
biggest problem is I think the 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 senior guarantee indenture. Um, if every if they were if the company was to grant that guarantee, the, the main way to to uh, cure um, the alleged fault is to give the guarantee that White Box is seeking. If they give that guarantee. Then they just produce uh, uh, that, that'll just generate uh, some other claimants against the the company uh, because currently they have the uh, existing guarantee notes um, or at least White Box and Pimco uh, fighting against them. And if they were to give that guarantee and put the uh, Pimco, White Box, and other holders of those notes uh, default notes on a parity basis with the new senior, senior guarantee notes. Then those those holders of the senior guarantee notes are probably just going to turn around and sue. Also, the uh, uh, central uh, the central framework that White Box is suing the company over um, that that somehow allowed them to get into court uh, before they otherwise could have was they made a securities fraud claim um, that the uh, exchange offer memorandum that marketed the new senior guarantee notes was uh, factually untrue. And they sought uh, a disclosure that um, the, uh, the guarantee was going to have to be given, and the court, and the company has said that's not true. Guarantee doesn't need to be given. Well, if it comes if it comes to fruition that all of the existing junior guarantee notes are just put on a structurally parry level to the new exchange notes, then then of course those new exchange notes are going to turn around and cause a fuss. Um, so it, it just doesn't seem that uh, practical of a solution. Um, one one. Um, kind of created and probably very unlikely way to get around all of this is if the company could just kind of play musical chairs with each guarantee and um, instead of doing uh, basically do a drop down below the revolver guarantor level um, and, and move the revolver's guarantees into that level, move the senior guarantee notes into a, a, the revolver guarantee box and then, then give the guarantee um, from uh, that that white box is claiming it's due, but uh, there's a couple points with that. One, that's going to take a whole lot of legwork uh, to to do that. Uh, if assuming a court uh, finds uh, holds against the company, um, to do that before December first, and to get uh, senior guarantee holders on board into swapping down uh, into uh, a, a box one step below, getting revolver lenders on board. Two, if that is possible, um, I'm not really sure if it is possible, but it, I thought maybe it was. But if it, if that if that kind of uh, musical chair strategy is even a possibility, then why didn't the company just do that originally? Like, if that is a possible solution, then why didn't they just structure the exchange offers like that to begin with? Um, and instead of inserting um, a drop down in between the two guarantee levels, just got the revolver. Uh, just did the drop down below the revolver guarantor level and, and started there. Um, and, and that would not have created all of these issues that are currently ongoing about uh, whether the com- uh, covenant applies to uh, only directly held assets or whether it applies to uh, uh, the, the guarantor and its subsidiaries taken as a whole. Okay. Thanks. Uh, I think that is all the time we have for questions. Again, as a reminder, a replay with slides will be available on the Reorg Media page later today. Uh, Thank you all for joining us today. Thanks again for tuning into this Reorg Weekly Review. As always, you can find all of our podcasts on the reorg.com media page, iTunes, and SoundCloud. And we hope you and your families are healthy and safe. Talk to you again in a week.